This episode is brought to you by IVP. How do we enter into our feelings and listen to what they're telling us instead of ignoring or bypassing them? Professor and personal development coach, Dr. Peace Amadi helps us navigate the complexity of our emotions in her book, Why Do I Feel Like This? With insights from both psychology and scripture, this book offers you a clear plan to get your peace and freedom back and find your joy again. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Why Do I Feel Like This for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP. You walk into a church where you know you're about to have a really diff- like maybe potentially um, difficult political conversation in your body, like your chest tightens up and you can feel your stomach ch- like clench and your heart starts to race. This is information. When I say that our body is speaking to us, this is what I mean. Let's notice that our body, it sounds like, is beginning to go to a place of a protective mode because something feels unsafe. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Chess. Today, we're talking to Andy Kolber about the psychological and emotional resources we need for a challenging election season. Andy shares so many insights about how to navigate our own experiences, our relationships with others, and our relationship with God. Andy Kolber is a licensed professional counselor and best-selling author of the critically acclaimed Try Softer, as well as her new book, Strong Like Water. She has received additional training in her specialization of trauma and body-centered therapies and is passionate about the integration of faith and psychology. Andy regularly speaks at local and national events, and she has appeared in podcasts such as The Lazy Genius with Kendra Adachi, Typology, and The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. As a survivor of trauma, Andy brings hard-won knowledge about the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God with us in our pain. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited. We were just talking. This is not the thing that you talk about all the time, but I think there are so many important places of overlap and resonance with what you do. You have written a lot about personal and relational health and flourishing, and you are a therapist. And I can imagine people already hearing that you're doing this podcast going, I don't know what that has to do with this conversation we're having about politics, but... I also think there are a lot of people entering an election season and the thing that they are imagining about 2024 is not just, oh, well, I'll have to make some political decisions. I'll sit down and I'll think some deep thoughts about what I believe about the world and I'll make some decisions. They're probably imagining difficult conversations around a dinner table or across a church pew. They're thinking about the turmoil that they themselves will feel when the world feels really unstable and things feel scary. They're thinking about relationships that might be tested. And they might be thinking, and we can get into this in a minute, they might even be imagining what happened in 2020 or in 2016 and remembering things that were really hard. So I think what you do has so much to say to us. Let's start with just a basic truth that I think is really important to our understanding of this whole conversation. You know, relational dynamics, community dynamics. 
is the relationship between our bodies and our emotions and our experiences. So with all of your expertise, let's just start off with this. Why is understanding our embodied experiences and our responses to our experiences important for us as we anticipate a difficult season? Yeah. Well, first, thank you just for what you've shared there, because I think you're touching on the complexity um, of this type of conversation because it's so much more than just one thing. I mean, that in many ways, it brings an intersection of so many things, including our bodies, right? And so I think I'll just say a couple things to start. And one is to say my particular angle into this is as a trauma therapist, and it also is as a survivor of complex trauma. And so I do have a somewhat unique experience into understanding our bodies. And with that said, I know not everybody listening maybe identifies that way. They don't identify as a trauma survivor. They maybe that it's just not their lens. And I, I totally honor that. Um, but what I've come to learn in my work, my own story, but also, you know, something like 16 years working clinically is that Oftentimes, I find that people get to this point where they find that there is a disconnect between what they know cognitively and what they actually do, what they live out, and even what they experience in their bodies. Now, there are some really particular things that are important about that from the lens of trauma, right? But even without trauma, what I want folks and listeners to understand is that every single person has a nervous system and a body. And many of us have been influenced by a culture. And I say that, I think this is true secularly and in the church, where we have really been trained and taught to disconnect from our bodies. Um, we have been taught to suppress emotion. Um, I think from a faith lens, I think of this a little bit as a Gnostic way of existing, right? It's like a hierarchy of in Gnostic, this belief, this idea that created matter is less um, spiritual or good or sacred than that which is um, spiritual, right? And so I think that what can end up happening is that we do that then to ourselves, like, like we learn it and then we internalize that and so the consequence of some of that way of existing is a couple of things. One thing that ends up happening is that we, if we don't know how to feel our feelings, if we don't know how to be in our bodies, it can come out sideways, sometimes through emotions that um, we say things we don't mean, or we blame, or we do things and we're like, where did that come from? Or the other angle then is that like, then we suppress it deep down, deep, deep down, you know? And then we're actually just really disconnected from our, not even just those emotions, but all of who we are. So when we're thinking about this conversation, you know, what I would say in my particular expertise and angle is that there can really be no both communal and individual flourishing if we do not have the ability to learn to be in our bodies, to inhabit our God-given bodies. And so 
Because what can happen is, is that we might know a lot of really good things. We might have beliefs about who God is, who other people are. We might believe that really in many respects, very firmly. But if we do not address that disconnect, it will almost always end up coming out sideways once we get into situations that cause really high stress. Um, And I think that's just a pattern that we have seen a lot, um, especially in the political arenas this, this last decade, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I loved reading your work and then hearing you say this because I'll do these like events. I'll go to Christian schools or churches and talk about, you know, how we can more faithfully think about politics. And something that people will say to me all the time is that, you know, a conversation will pop up after church, you know, a a scripture was preached that dealt with something that is inevitably political. It's communal. It's about what human beings need to flourish. And so a conversation happens after church about politics or, you know, even worse than that, like online, something pops up and we're having this conversation online and people will say, I don't even know how I got to the place where I reacted the way that I did. Like I couldn't even in the moment pinpoint why when this person said this thing, I reacted the way that I did. Are there ways that we can engage in those kinds of conversations better? I think that is such a good point. And I think that is so telling, you know, like to take it out of the political context for a moment and putting it more into just like, you know, more of a therapy setting. People will talk about their experience of there's a mismatch between their reaction and the event. Yeah. Right. So for for me in the work that I do, particularly like I do a lot uh, with body centered work and then particularly with the nervous system. And one of the things that's telling for us is when someone has an experience where their reaction to a to an event or a moment, a sensation. I mean, it could be many different things is disproportionate to the situation itself, right? Because the way our bodies are designed is that when we are in a situation of legitimate threat, if our body is working like correctly, (laughs) if our nervous system is in tune with what's happening, we will respond in kind, right? So if you're about to get hit by a car and you suddenly and instantaneously move out of the way of that car, That is your body tapping into your survival brain to keep you safe. And that is exactly what your body is designed to do. Now, certainly there's caveats to that. There's there's different things, but we want that. But what can happen, and it can happen for lots of different reasons in lots of different venues, but in this situation, we're talking about in a political arena context, that someone that we have known, have a relationship with, or maybe we don't even have that, but we generally see people as worthy of dignity. But we get into a situation in which we have deep feelings about, or maybe we've experienced harm around Maybe it's connected to who we are, our identity. It could be a part of our history. Um, It could also be part of things that we've internalized around what's right or wrong. I mean, all of these things impact the stories we hold in our body. So, So we're holding this and then we come to the situation. And when we don't have the capacity like to observe ourselves to some extent, we are more likely to go outside of what's called the window of tolerance. It's a term coined by Dr. Dan Siegel, and it means it's the range of arousal 
in which we can feel our feelings or tolerate an experience before we go into sort of a stress response or potentially a trauma response, right? So when we leave that window, the top of our brain goes offline, meaning so it's our prefrontal cortex and it's a part of our brain that helps us integrate all parts of us. And this is the part of our brain that would also help like inhibit us a little bit if we were like, hey, maybe that's not a good idea or maybe this isn't the right place or hey, remember, even though you disagree with this person, maybe shaming them isn't the way through, right? Like all of those things, gone. We are just in survival brain. And survival brain have gotten to the point where, not gotten to, but the way it operates in our bodies is we are simply concerned about surviving the moment. There's value to that. But the thing that is difficult about that is if, if we are in our survival brain on the internet, the likelihood that we are going to see people who are trying to maybe just have a, potentially have a conversation, or maybe they're not, maybe they're actually trying to get into it. The likelihood that we will act out of alignment with our actual values is very high, is very high because we do not have the capacity of our full self, right? And I think this is a really key idea. And so all that to say, all we bring all of this with us as we think about these conversations. And so, you know, when you're thinking about those folks who are like, oh man, all of a sudden, what was I doing? I'm like, likely you are in your survival brain. That's, I mean, you're yeah. probably out of your window and you missed the cues that you were leaving your window because maybe you never learned. I want to add, you know, a lot of my perspective, I really try to come from a compassion-based perspective. Like we can have so much compassion for our bodies, our fragility. Um, we are fragile. We are, we are resilient and we are fragile. And with that said, obviously that doesn't mean it's okay to cause harm. But if we can bring some gentleness and, and you know, to in, do a little bit of faith integration, I really believe that God's posture to us is deeply compassionate, that we could participate in stewarding that compassion mm to these human bodies that can only handle so much. Yeah, that we would begin to bring a little bit more discernment as we engage those experiences. I was thinking recently about this. I was talking to some friends at church and I was telling them that I was going to do a series at church in the fall on politics. And one of the people I was talking to was just like, no, I can't, I cannot come to that. Um, I cannot engage these questions with, specifically, she was thinking of some intergenerational differences. She was like, there are some people at this church that I just disagree with so strongly about politics. That will just be bad for me. And I don't know her very well, but afterwards I was reflecting on it and I was thinking, okay, so on one hand, I want to honor that someone was able to articulate some boundaries and say, like, that's not a good conversation for me. Um, And I can imagine circumstances in which there are people who for a season might need to say, like, no, like I can't. There are certain things that are just outside the bounds of what is safe or good for me. But then on the other hand, I want to say I want us to cultivate the ability to withstand what isn't actually harmful to us might be uncomfortable, might be difficult, but is something that like we we really as a community need to do together. And so I'm curious, how could you describe for people maybe when to know when you draw a boundary and you say, that's the thing I can't engage in? 
And then if it's not that, if maybe it isn't going to really cause harm to me, but it is something I need to learn to to engage well and withstand some discomfort, how can we learn how to do that? Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you're coming at this through the lens of boundaries because I think this is a key concept, right? And the first thing I want to say, even with boundaries, is that I think boundaries are widely misunderstood um, in our culture and I think in our Christian culture too, um, that boundaries are often sometimes I think people think of it like a punishment, like, oh, you bothered me, so I'm setting a boundary with you, right? Here's the thing. Boundaries are first and foremost really about us. And if we even bring that sort of body-centered lens, they are also about our ability to stay connected to that window of tolerance. And so if we can change, if we can shift that a little bit, it's like, it's more about protecting what allows us to have access to who God made us, to our wisdom, to and even to our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because once we lose that, we get into that territory that can get dangerous, both for us, but also for others. So boundaries are a really important part of this conversation. And they're going to look different based off of different people. Like if you are a trauma survivor, like depending on your history, depending on your identity, depending on so many things. And so that's not a one size fits all which is why a lot of times I start with talking about the body. Like it's almost like that's the foundation of this, um, that we begin to learn to listen to our bodies, right? And and of course, I know some people are hearing that and they're like, what does that mean? (laughs) They're like, and, and I just, I get it. I recognize that. But what I would just say is that our bodies are some, are communicating to us through lots of different physical sensations and experiences that we're having. But oftentimes we have learned to tune those out, to ignore them. We feel like we have to, right? So even that sense of you walk into a church where you know you're about to have a really diff- like maybe potentially um, difficult political conversation in your body, like your chest tightens up and you can feel your stomach ch- like clench and your heart starts to race. This is information. Like it's when I say that our body is speaking to us, this is what I mean. Now it's less of a, like, here's the exact thing that our body's saying. Um, but it is a way to say, oh, let's, let's notice this. Let's notice that our body, it sounds like is beginning to go to a place of a protective mode because something feels unsafe right? Now for different people, that might look different because like, let's say it's someone who's been doing some work and they're like, you know what? They take a moment and they, uh, you know, sort of get themselves grounded, meaning they really orient themselves to the place and time. They're like, I'm an adult. I have a voice. If I need to leave, it's okay for me to leave. I can sit in the back if I want to. I can speak to the extent that I feel okay. Um, if I have to leave halfway through, that's totally fine. Like all those things are potentially cues of safety for that person that might, then they might notice, oh, okay, my shoulders drop a little bit. I take a little bit of a breath and I'm like, you know what? I can stay, right? 
But let's say it's another person and they come in and they don't have those resources. They've never had the ability to reflect on that because maybe that just wasn't safe to, that was just not part of what their experience is. And all of a sudden, the first question is brought up, somebody answers, and that person is out of their window and they're gone, right? Like they're gone, meaning physiologically, neurobiologically, their body is full into potentially a stress response. So I just want us to notice that difference, that it's so understandable that this is a difficult conversation. And I think wisdom requires us to say, how do we prepare? If we want to stay in a conversation in a way that's uncomfortable, but not harmful, it's sort of like going on a hike and you need to make sure you have what you need. Like you need a ton of water, you need food, you need the right clothing, you need a map, you need, like you need some stuff. Like do not go, I used to live in Colorado and it's like, do not go climb a 14 or unprepared. Don't do that. I would say it's a little bit similar to, to bring those types of resources with us as we engage those conversations. While you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it, it feels like it just happened and it feels like a million years ago, but 2020 was for most people going to be full of some really difficult memories and experiences. Like the election happened in a point when we were still mostly isolated because of COVID. There were protests for racial justice. And so some of us had curfews or we were very aware of this like important but difficult conversation. Um, many of us, maybe the, the deepest community that we had wasn't meeting in person still very likely at that point. And so there's all of the difficulty that comes with that. And so I'm just imagining that it's true maybe uniquely in 2024 in a way that it isn't always even true that we might, as we begin to approach the election season, it might not just be about the election. Like the last time this happened, there was all this other stuff happening that was really hard. How would you advise us um, for people who who think, I, I know I can withstand these difficult conversations. I want to. I think there's something important that needs to happen in my church or in my community. I want to show up to a city council meeting. I want to But I'm suddenly aware that as I'm in those spaces again, as those conversations happen again, I might in my body and my mind return to how hard it was last time. And I want to honor that, but I don't want my response to things today to be really a response to something that isn't happening anymore, you know, a response to what was happening maybe in 2020. How can we, you know, in some way prepare maybe um, or process some of that? Are there practices that we might want to adopt? Or um, yeah, how, how might we prepare knowing that that might be especially difficult this year of all election years? Yeah. I think there are things that we can do. And, you know, I think in a way, I mean, I, I, I think about, I want to talk about some really practical pieces, but again, I think one of the first things that I would actually offer is, a, is compassion. I think learning to again, you know, like, so my first book is called Try Softer, right? And, and I partly wrote that in response to the fact that not only as a trauma survivor, but living in a culture that the answer is always simply try harder. Yeah. And holy moly, <laughs> if you've just lived through the last five years, like you're tired, 
(laughs) right? Like it has been a lot. And so if you are one of those people and you're like, yes, I, I want to engage the discomfort, but it is hard. I sometimes say it feels hard because it is hard. Like you're not making it up. That element, like you're not being hyperbolic, right? Like um, this is real. You're not blowing that out of proportion. It is very hard and that's valid. And to honor that with compassion, I hope I find that for a lot of people, that's a first step to just being like, I I don't have to just pretend, right? Like it's not just like, oh, but some, for some people it's easy. Like I would say, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. let's just start there by telling the truth, right? The truth is, is that even in the best case, this is hard and that's okay. That doesn't mean we can't do it. We can, but let's start with telling the truth. And as we do that, you know, I think that's where, again, we begin to even pull in more resources and some of the resources, some of my favorites, um, there's a lot is what I want you to know. And I talk about that in both of my books for folks who are interested, but I'll, I'll pull some of my favorites. My first favorite that I talk about pretty much everywhere I go, um, is called grounding and grounding is when we use our five senses to, um, essentially bring us into the present moment because God willing, the present moment really is actually safe. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's always comfortable, right? But again, let's let's be very specific about the difference between discomfort and harm. Because if we are uncomfortable, that doesn't necessarily mean we're unsafe. And so by coming into the present moment, you know, it might be doing things like noticing the temperature of the room. If you're sitting in a church, maybe you're, you're feeling the pew, you know, and you're feeling the texture of the pew. Are you smelling anything? Um, can you feel your feet on the ground? Um, you know, we're sometimes, you know, I might just encourage folks to get real particular with the details of what they're noticing with their eyes or with their ears. Because what this does is it essentially it orients us. And orientation to the present is a really important piece for our nervous system. Because when our body begins to get activated to something that has been disturbing, we sort of are leaning heavily on our right brain. And our right brain cannot tell the difference between past and present. And so we lose orientation to time. So if, if we start to get activated about something that happened in 2016, we lose the resources of the present. So that grounding, you know, is a, is just one way. There are other ways too, but it's a way to bring us back here, keeping that prefrontal cortex online, keeping us connected to more of the things that are true, have been true. And it's something that we can do that we can't think our way out of again, This is from a neurobiological standpoint. Our body literally has to have enough cues of safety for this to happen. It's not so much a cognitive process as it is a um, process by which our body is literally perceiving safety. Like, let's say you start, you're in a situation where you're starting to get activated. I would, if you're able, I would actually encourage you to maybe take a break and maybe go outside for five minutes and spend some time really grounding. Like if you're able to even like, take your shoes off and put your feet in the grass. Like just the sensoriness of it really can bring us back in a way. Again, we're kind of coming back to the window of tolerance so we can be more present to what's actually happening versus what happened in the past. 
so that's, I think that's a great one. And I will continue probably to talk about it everywhere I go because it's just so accessible. You know, I mean, I think it's something that a lot of folks could, can potentially do. Another thought I think is I love helping folks um, develop scripts for different situations, right? So for example, you could have a boundary script. And again, you could be as creative with this as you need to be. Like maybe you have a boundary script for people that it's just like, I love you, but it really is a no for me. Mm -hmm. Like I'm paying attention. We have had enough of those in the past. It's just a no. So here's my script for that situation, right? But then I have the folks who I'm like, it's a yes with caveats, (laughs) right? So then I might develop some of those things about how we bring curiosity and some compassion to a situation that's, again, uncomfortable, but feels safe enough, meaning our body has enough cues of safety that we can stay with the situation. Because again, when you're in the moment, it can be hard to think well. So having a little bit of time outside of that and saying, you know, ideally, what would I say here? What's the end goal? And so maybe it's just that I'm able to listen to a different perspective in a way that I'm able to stay open to without feeling like I have to completely agree with them. Maybe that's a potential goal. So work backwards from that. How will you know that it's time to leave? (laughs) What's the exit strategy, right? Maybe it's a time limit. Maybe it's like, you know what, I am able to have this kind of conversation for about eight minutes. And that's just, that honors my window of tolerance. And then I, and then I, as graciously as possible, I exit that conversation. So I am a big fan of scripts. Um, Not because, I mean, obviously we always have the freedom. Like if we get curious, if it ultimately, ideally, if, if we can find that common ground where things feel generative, where we can get creative, where we can, um, in the work that I do, we use the term co-regulation. That is when people are able to be present to each other in a way that their nervous systems are actually nourishing each other, which is this really beautiful truth. And I think it's actually, when we talk about flourishing, like that's where we're going. That's what we hope for. But we can't get to flourishing We can't imagine or reimagine flourishing from a place of survival. We have to have at least a little bit of safety. And I mean that in a neurobiological sense to be able to sort of have the creativity to think ahead about what it means for us to, yeah, to work together. Even just the framing you had at the beginning of like, I I totally hear this from people and I know it in myself of no, I just, I do have to try harder. And <laughs> like, this shouldn't be so hard. And also if I am feeling like this is difficult or I'm responding in my body in a way that I don't like, I should just stop <laughs> and I should just like keep going in the conversation. And I think for people who are really passionate about certain political issues, especially, I think a lot of people listening probably maybe even just recently have become aware of of how deeply broken the world is and how much they want to be involved in really practical ways to fix things, it can feel like, no, I don't have time <laughs> to like, you know, sit and think about my feelings. Like I, I, we have to just get this work done. And I love how you have described each of those things as oriented towards being able to be your full self and have your cognitive resources available to you and being able to be engaged. And I think 
too much of that mentality of just like, let's just power through it. Let's just get through it. And then it's a mess. Like, yeah, we we muscled through it, but then we got into the meeting and it fell apart because we weren't paying attention to any of those things. So that's so that's so helpful, the resources that you've given people. The word lament probably doesn't make you think happy thoughts. It conjures up images of sadness, mourning, and loss. So I was intrigued by the title of Tara McDaniel's book, Hopeful Lament. It might seem like an oxymoron, but McDaniel makes the case that lament can offer surprising amounts of healing and even hope. In the midst of catastrophe and other challenges to her family's well-being, McDaniel discovered how lament could lead the way through the suffering. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Hopeful Lament at ivypress.com. And related to this, I, I loved in TriSofter, you talked about building up a tolerance for feeling, for you know experiencing emotions, and you compared it to building a muscle. And I will just tell you, like personally, I am so like easily deceived into thinking I am a brain on a stick and I have lots of ideas and I, I don't have a body and I don't have feelings and none of that's involved. And it has been really hard. It's been a big kind of area of growth for me in the last few years to figure out how to practice feeling deeply things that are appropriate emotional responses to things in the world. And so it's so it's such a conviction of mine that in these conversations, emotion is a really underappreciated part of our political dysfunction, that we don't recognize the role emotions play, that we ignore emotions that are like I said, appropriate responses to things that that actually have motivated some really good political work in our history have been really like they haven't been just cognitive things. They've been full people engaging their spiritual and their emotional lives. Can you help us think about what it looks like to build that muscle? Because I can imagine there are people listening that they do want to just try harder. And so I hope that what you just said helped them go, OK, well, that's that's not actually an effective strategy. And they might be really smart people that read a lot of books about this stuff and care a lot about it, you know, get really wonky with the policy, want to show up to meetings with the data, but might not have learned well how to how to feel things deeply, how to acknowledge the emotions they're feeling, how to how to experience them instead of kind of pushing them away. Well, I so appreciate what you've just shared, because as I'm hearing that, I'm thinking in myself, like, I just bless like that capacity and desire, like, like those, those cognitions, like there is goodness there. And I want to be really clear that, you know, it's, it's never about trading one almost like for the other. And I think that for me, like, this is where I think faith is a real resource in the sense that I think we are called to wholeness and wholeness again, right? Like it literally, it's, it's, it's both. It's yes. And it's both. And like that we are made for the fullness. Um, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And so I honor those things. And what I would say is, and I hope it's an encouragement to folks who resonate with what you're saying, like that they, like, they're like, yeah, I can get into the, like the, the deep end around these things. And it's maybe even lights them up in a certain way. And like, those are good things. And as we learn to really honor our bodies and listen for those cues, listen for our nervous system, we don't become less of ourselves. We become more. 
And becoming more of ourselves, part of what I think that entails is that it's not that we give up the cognition, it's that the cognition is able to partner with what I would say is almost like different, uh, you know, backgrounds have different ways of describing this. So maybe it's like your true self or in the work that I do, sometimes I call it like my adult self. It's like our self as the full expression of us, right? And so when we have our full self online, those things that have been sort of tools or ways that we've sort of navigated go from being simply like almost a coping skill to they have the potential to be be in service of the wholeness. So it changes from something where we're like, yeah, I'm talking about cognitions and I don't realize that my emotions are driving the bus, but I'm not admitting it because that happens, right? Like just because we don't acknowledge that emotions are um, a part of it does not mean that emotions are not a part of it. We're simply not acknowledging that they are because oftentimes that's when they tend to come out sideways because we are essentially trying to keep them below our consciousness. And when they're below our consciousness, we have less choice. So once they begin to come into the awareness of sort of like our, like our full brain, basically, we have a little more choice. And so all that to say, I think this work, I think it can start really small. Like, let's say you go to a meeting and you just take a moment and maybe first you do that grounding that I explained. And then you take a moment and there's a skill called a body scan. And a body scan is when we sort of picture like a laser going from like the bottom of our toes, maybe to the top of our head. And essentially what we're looking for is like, maybe I'm thinking about how things went and I'm just noticing, what do I notice as I do that body scan? Like, oh, I didn't realize it, but I actually have a headache or I have a headache and I'm really hungry um, and I feel X, Y, Z, right? Those are those like some of the things that might come to light. And again, it's going to look different for different people. But doing this, then we might begin to say, okay, now that I know that I have a headache, like, like, what's that about? Oh, I'm noticing I've been like bracing the whole meeting. Like I've been like, Ugh. um, and I'm noticing I actually have been really, I might allow me to get a little bit curious, like, oh, I, I think I was anxious the whole time. Oh, okay. So then what would I need? To give myself permission to be like, okay, the meeting's over. You know, it didn't go perfectly, but it went this way. What we're doing is this is a form, when we talk about emotional processing, like it's this too. Literally getting curious about the sensations of our bodies and being able to be like, huh, wonder what that's about. Now, sometimes you're going to know. Sometimes you're going to leave the meeting and you're going to be like, oh, that was the most uncomfortable thing. And I did this and all this. But all of that work is part of, you know, your original question is like, what does it look like to build that muscle? We build the muscle by learning to attune to our bodies and feeling the feelings that come with it. Um, this is how over time, what happens is our, our capacity expands because our body learns it's okay to feel feelings. Our body learns that we have the ability to move through things, that it's not unsafe to move through things. And as we do that, just like we build a muscle, we build that window of tolerance and our ability to be in discomfort without leaving 
sort of that core, those core parts of ourselves. Yeah, I'm just imagining people who who both kind of want to acknowledge the role that emotion is playing in all of this and want to, you know, like I said, draw on the the history we have of all of that being a, you know, bringing the full person to our political lives. I think that's so important. Another area of what you do that I just think is so relevant to this conversation is our understanding of of kind of how we relate to other people and our sense of security in our relationships. I think one of the another just like emotion and our bodies, another part of the political conversation that is so difficult because we don't really acknowledge it is that our conversations about politics are never just conversations about politics. Like you have said already in this conversation, I felt a sense of identity threatened, or I felt like, what, am I a good person? You, It felt like you were questioning that. or, And so at the root of a lot of our conversations, especially with people we have a pre-existing relationship with, someone who we care about what they think, someone that we feel a sense of community with, either we belong to the same church or we're in the same neighborhood or it's our family, the conversations we have are are about policies and politicians and et cetera. But then underneath that surface level is all this other stuff about our identity and our deeply held values and our sense of, do I belong to this community? And it's something that I keep seeing now in so many of the conversations I have is both how strong our various senses of loyalty can be in our political conversations. Who do I feel loyal to? Who do I feel like I need to defend? What community do I belong to? And then also the sense that we might have that we need to prove that we belong to a community or prove that these are my people. And so you've written a lot about this in a kind of interpersonal way about attachment styles and our sense of like our need for safety in relationships and how we learn to how we learn to have that, how we learn to have that in relationship to God and other humans and ourselves. How does any of that sit with you, first of all? And just are there ways for us to bring some of that knowledge that you have into this conversation about politics and about how those levels of community and identity just keep popping up in our relationships and our conversations. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is all attachment work. Every bit of everything that we're talking about, this is attachment work because all relationships are going to have some element of attachment um, informing how we're showing up. And obviously, I mean, there is a boatload of nuance. But when we talk about, I mean, because there is no me without we, <laughs> like, like I'm always formed by my context. I'm always formed by my relationships. The field of study that's called interpersonal neurobiology is literally about the way that our bodies are formed in relationship how our nervous system get gets formed in relationship to others. And first and foremost, starting with our earliest caregivers, but we would be remiss not to acknowledge that that also informs just who we are in the world, right? Like, and how we interact with groups, how we interact with our identities, our various identities, it is deeply ingrained in us to need relationships. I mean, it is one of our core human needs. And we will, especially like if we don't have like enough safety, we will do whatever it takes to belong. And I mean that literally, because I mean, I think from our earliest years, what happens is, is that it's such a deep inborn need. This is part of why kiddos blame themselves for the ways that caregivers abuse them. Because it's too painful to for a kid 
to be able to comprehend that someone that's supposed to take care of them would willingly harm them. And so in order to continue to belong, we make it our own fault, right? So I just bring that up as an example of the ways like our body tries to adapt in order to allow belonging. And so when I think about this conversation in the bigger picture, I mean, as we can at least name this dynamic, like we can name that this is a a pull, right? Like it's a pull to belong to your own group. It's a pull to belong in your family. It's a pull to belong in your relationships. And so if you have a thought that feels different, then what the majority group that can feel very threatening and to our nervous system that can feel like a threat. Now, I want to say that doesn't mean we get to just act however we want if we feel threatened, right? Like this is important. This is why these conversations are so hard because there's a lot of nuance. But if we can name that that's a reality, again, we bring it up into the light and we can say, oh, that's interesting, (laughs) Oh, isn't that interesting that I feel like if I have a belief that's different than my majority group, like that feels like life or death to me. That's interesting. Okay. And so I think like certainly it's not that there's always this quick fix, but sometimes I think as we begin to be able to bring that up, this is where it's like the both and of both like our, like the personal but at, but it informs the communal, right? Because all the communal is made up of the personal. And so sometimes it's really important that we do practice this in relationship because I would say like an example of a healthy dynamic would be, let's say you have a a different opinion than someone that you really care about. To be able to be in that situation and to say, hey, I just want to pause for a second. Like, let's say you're having a conversation. It's a heated conversation. It's getting uncomfortable. And to bring to like, this is something I don't think we have ever I don't think our culture has been trained to do, to take the thing that we are afraid of and to bring it to the light and to say, you know what? I just want to pause because what I'm starting to feel is like I'm starting to feel really worried. Like if you and I are going to be okay if we talk about this. Now, I just want to give a a, di- a disclaimer, that's not going to be the best thing to do in every situation. So just know that for folks listening, this is not always good because sometimes people are going to weaponize that. And I that's a sad thing, but I want to name that. But if you have the safety in the relationship to have that kind of what I would call immediacy, because it's no longer just about the policy, it's now about us. And if we can begin to have some relationships, it's probably not going to be very many, even for folks who are well-versed in this, because this is not easy to do. But to be able to bring the immediacy of like, man, here's what's coming up for me when I name that I see this differently. And I'm wondering how you're feeling about that. Because again, when I say that this is all attachment, part of what that means is, is that attachment is about what's called rupture and repair. That's from a psychologist, uh, Dr. Alan Shore, coined sort of the, the conversation around that. And what that means is, is that when we sort of feel like we're on the same page, that's sort of more that co-regulation idea that we talked about, right? When you say something, for example, that makes like, you know, my body braces, 
That could feel like a rupture to me. And if that happens often enough, and if it feels like I can never get back on the same page with you, that might be considered a rupture. And that rupture is really happening sort of even potentially below the narrative, right? This is not necessarily something anybody is even saying like, oh, right now we're having a rupture. It's like, no, I just feel that we're no longer on the same page. So if we can begin to bring some of that awareness to begin to talk about that, then there's, I think the other piece is also looking for the places where we, the people that we really feel like I can have a deep exhale here. And this is a sign that our bodies really are able, we are co-regulating. My body on a neurobiological level feels safe. And this is a sign that we're sort of getting nourished. All the output, right? When we talk about that try harder, that, that costs us something. So my encouragement for folks listening is like, where are you getting, where is that filling up again? Where do you go? Where are the places, the communities, the moments, the spiritual practices? What is filling you back up? That's such a perfect way to end, Andy, because I just think, um, as we said before, there are so many people that are just like, I, I have to do a lot. I, there's so, there are big problems in the world that feel overwhelming, especially with a national election. It just feels like every giant problem in the world can be on your shoulders. And to have that sense of, for me to be the kind of person that can do this well, I'm going to need a place I can exhale. I'm going to need relationships that feel safe. I'm going, that's such a good, a good word for people and a good word, I think, for preparation. We're not quite in the heat of it yet. People still have some time to go, okay, what, what do I need? What kind of people do I need to tell in advance? Hey, I might need a debrief after this conversation with you because you're a safe person. I might need more time together because we're having this big fight in our church and it's going to be a really draining thing. I might need, you know, I might need to tell my church, hey, we should all wear sandals. So if we need to go outside and be on the grass, we can do I it. it. Yeah. I, I think that's so helpful for people to just begin to think like, what practically do I need? So thank you so much for all of your work um, and especially for for doing the work of helping us think about how it applies to this this difficult season we're about to be in because I just think it's so important. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel. And leave a rating and review to support the podcast. God, he-